Uh, you may be seated. And I would like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. During Advent, we've been following through some themes that we see in the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and then also in Luke. And so we talked about Jesus being the son of David. Last week, we talked about Jesus being the son of Abraham. And this week, we look at Luke 3, 38, where Jesus is specifically designated as the son of, of Adam, the son of Adam, the first man. Uh, there are uh, outlines, sermon notes in the back. If you'd like to grab it, it's certainly fine with me if you get up and get it now, if it's helpful to you. So today, we're looking at Adam. We're going to look at it from the perspective of Romans 5. I'm going to read starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. But the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Well, this is our text. My outline is super, super simple. We're going to be looking at Adam first and then at Christ second. So we're going to look at who we are in Adam, what happened in Adam, and then how Christ reverses it and saves us from Adam's sin. So let's look at Adam first. You may not know this, but the 18th century uh, American colonies used a particular textbook to teach their children how to read and write. It was called the New England Primer. New England Primer. You can easily find it online. This is what they used to teach the ABCs, for example. And it wasn't just to teach them grammar and letters, but it was also to teach them a worldview. And so all these biblical themes were woven into the grammar and into the ABCs. And so it's quite a fascinating reading if you want to check it out sometime. But to give you a taste, this is how they learned their ABCs. There was a picture and a short poem for every letter. So, for example, A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. B, heaven to find the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. Now, of course, you're wondering about X, right, aren't you? Is it going to be X-ray or xylophone? It's one or the other, right? No. This is what they say on X. X, Xerxes did die, and so must I. A cheerful X. Xerxes did die, and so must I. You've got to remember they're children, so they need to know that death is coming. 
just like it did to Xerxes. So the colonial children were growing up with this clear biblical teaching, because it's, it's in the first letter of the alphabet, that in Adam they also sinned. That somehow in one man's transgression, something that Adam did, something that he decided, now all of humanity, those children included, are now doomed, they're condemned to, uh, to, uh, to God's punishment. And so in Adam's fall, we sent all is what they learned from the very beginning. And of course, that is a clear teaching of Scripture that informs our worldview. It's essential to our faith to understand what happened in Adam. Paul says in our text, sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So the Bible teaches that somehow in one man's decision, in one man's action, now all of humanity is affected for the worse. Many people have a hard time with accepting this kind of idea, this kind of teaching, that somehow one person's decision long time ago, and who knows if he even existed or what actually happened there, but somehow that man's decision now affects all of us and makes us guilty before God. Now, I remember when I was a, a new Christian, probably just within a few months of my conversion, I was talking to my father, who to this day is an unbeliever, and I was explaining this very thing to him, and I was, I was sharing the gospel with him the best that I could, and that was the stumbling point for him. He was saying, how can it be that I'm responsible for Adam's choices? It was hard for him to accept that somehow his fate hinged on someone else's decisions long, long time ago. And he's, a, he's not a believer to this day, perhaps in part for that reason, that he can't accept this biblical teaching that Adam's decisions now affect all of us. So I want to look at this. I want to look at this idea how in one man we are doomed, but then in another man we are saved. And we're going to follow through some of these themes through Scripture, and hopefully I'm hoping to give you a lot of illustrations. A lot, of, a lot of ways for us to understand it ourselves and be able to explain it to others. Now, first, we have to go to Genesis 3. I'm not going to read it, but I encourage you to open it so you can see what happened in Genesis 3. That's when it all started with Adam. God had commanded to the first couple, Adam and Eve, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's interesting that, you know, for us we would say, well, God seems to just arbitrarily choose something for them not to do, to test them perhaps, to make their lives miserable. No, remember that everything in the garden was yes. Remember that, right? All the trees were available to them. There was just one tree that was a no, that they couldn't take, take from. Why? Well, God had his reasons, and there's several theories you can look up to know why. I think there was a matter of time. I think they were not ready. They were not mature enough to understand and to, to be exposed to this kind of knowledge. And so God didn't want them to do it yet. I think in God's per perfection, that was probably something that was going to happen at some point. But before God decided that, they broke the commandment, listened to the serpent, and first Eve and then Adam took the fruit from the tree. Again, for us, we say, well, it, it's, it seems like uh, God was overreacting a little bit, or maybe a lot, right? They took a piece of fruit. And now all of humanity, 
for the rest of eternity is condemned as guilty? It seems a little bit of an overreaction, right? If your child takes a piece of fruit they're not supposed to take at home, you're not going to punish them forever, right? Even if you were saving that piece of fruit for something. So why is, why is God's reaction so fierce, so strong against that particular act of disobedience? Well, because ultimately it wasn't about fruit, right? It wasn't about a particular action. What Adam and Eve did is, is what one scholar, D.A. Carson, calls it, de-godding of God, making God less of who he is. It's dethroning God. It's de-godding, taking God's nature out of him. In other words, they, they said, God, you are not in charge anymore. We are in charge. Not your will matters, but our will matters. Not your authority is important, but our authority. It's not what you want for us, but it's what we want for ourselves. So we're going to construct our own meaning we're going to live in our own reality. We're going to make decisions that please us no matter what you think. So the sin isn't biting the fruit. The sin is dethroning God, challenging God, reversing roles in creation. Now God is no longer at the center, able to decide what's good and what's bad. Now people want to be in the center. Now they want to decide. Now they want to pass moral judgment on their own actions and the actions of others. So what happened? A reversal. And that act of Adam now changes the trajectory of humanity. Now think about it. If Adam and Eve were created to live in perfect harmony with God, I assume that they were growing closer and closer to God as time went on. I assume that they learned to enjoy God better as they got to know him better and better. I assume that their knowledge of God increased, that they learned different things about him because their minds were still finite. Remember that they're not, they're not as God. Their minds don't work the same the mind of God works. So they were learning. They were accumulating knowledge. And with every day, their love for God grew. Their worship of God became more pleasing to him because they knew more about him, were able to reflect in, in his own image in them more of God. But now, what happens when God's authority is challenged, his laws are broken, his worship ceases, the trajectory is different. Now instead of moving closer to God, Adam and Eve start moving further and further away from God. Now what happens then? All those things that God freely gives us, if we run away from him, are becoming less and less a part of our lives. So there's no more worship. They start forgetting. With every day, they, they forget what God is like. So their worship is not pure anymore. They're not reflecting God anymore. Now they're constructing their own gods. We are constructing their own, our own gods. We're constructing idols out of our own imagination, what we think God should be like and not what he is like in reality. And so we move away from God, further and further away. And because God is the author of life, that life itself comes from him, now we are affected more and more by death itself. And so Paul says, death reigns over us. It rules over us. It controls us. You see, the trajectory is changed. Instead of being closer to God and, and life being more full, right, more meaningful, more joyful, more reflecting of God's wisdom and his power, now it's becoming less and less life and more and more of death. 
And so Paul is right to talk about death as a reality, as a universal reality that comes through one man, that one decision, but because the trajectory, the direction has changed, now death affects all of us. Listen to Athanasius. He was a, a, a fourth century a pastor, a theologian in Egypt. He says, For the transgression of the commandment was making them turn back again according to their nature. And as they had at the beginning come into being out of non-existence, so were they now on the way to returning through corruption to non-existence again. The presence and love of the Word, meaning God, had called them into being. Inevitably, therefore, when they lost the knowledge of God, they lost existence with it. For it is God alone who exists. Evil is non-being, the negation and antithesis of good. Athanasius says that without God, there's no life. Without God, there's no existence. And so death will more and more take over our lives the less God we have. And so that's true, right? Death is a universal reality. There's not many people who reject the reality of death. And if they do, we don't believe them, right? We don't think they have a, a good grasp on reality. Because we all experience death, not just at the end of life, which is something I think many of us have come to be accustomed to, perhaps, to a certain degree, but throughout life. When a woman gets pregnant, she starts taking vitamins. Why? To protect life. To correct something that might go wrong. Right away, this baby, from the very early days, has started battling against death. Birth happens in the hospital. Why? To battle death. Hospital is a place where diseases are stopped, where things are fixed, right? Where death is pushed back just a little bit. Throughout life, we're dealing with death. Our bodies deteriorate. Things fall apart, right? We get sick. There's accidents. There's inexplicable things happening to our bodies. We don't even know what's going on. The doctors can't figure it out. That's a normal occurrence for human beings, right? Our minds go. Our bodies go. Our emotions are out of whack. I mean, all that stuff is part of our experience. This is a universal experience of death and destruction and deterioration. One philosopher Again, cheerfully notice that the first step a toddler takes is a step towards death. It's depressing, isn't it, to think about it? But that's the direction, that's the trajectory. That's inevitably where we all end up. Now, of course, some poets and scientists would like to tell us that death is natural. You know, it's all part of the circle of life, right? Let's sing a song about it and we feel better, right? problem is we don't feel better. Even if you believe in the intellectual argument of why death is important and necessary and that's just how nature is and that's just how things work, nobody feels comfortable with that. In your heart, you object to that. Maybe not in your mind, maybe you bought into the argument intellectually, but emotionally, everything inside of you rises against that and saying, it's not right. When people die, it's not right, right? When, when something like that happens, Initially, instinctively, your reaction is, it shouldn't be happening. Why is this happening? And in a particular circumstance, when somebody dies at a young age, for example, there's anger, right? Many of us experience anger. Why? If it's a natural thing, if this is how nature works, if this is just part of the circle of life and we should all rejoice in it, why is nobody rejoicing in it? 
Why is it so hard for us to accept it? Why is it emotionally that we can never say yes to death? How do you explain this? Many can explain it intellectually, but emotionally I think it's very, very difficult to come to grips with the existence of death. But the Bible helps us. The Bible tells us why our hearts rebel against it, even if our minds can explain it away. Because in Adam, something unnatural entered the world. You see, something foreign, something alien. We're not supposed to experience death, which is why we don't like it, which is why we, we rise against it when it happens. And yet, we all experience it. Adam's sin, something he did, opened a door to an invader, to a robber, to a bandit that came into our existence and has taken something that's ours. You see, we're made to live. We're made to live joyfully. We're made to live fully. And yet, that is not our experience. Because something is here that's not supposed to be here. And it doesn't feel natural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And we feel it. But through Adam, it entered our world. Some of the Greek church fathers talked about sin as a disease. It's like a condition that was passed on from our first parents down to us. Uh, it's like Adam would be patient zero in an epidemic, right? It spreads from him, but it, it started with him. He opened that door, and now everybody who's related to him is affected with this disease. Now, it's a familiar idea to us, not just because of the epidemics that we hear about or are affected by, but because anytime you go to a new doctor, which makes me think anytime, when I go to the doctor's next, that's, I'm going to have to fill out this form because I haven't been to the doctor's in a while. And the form is your family history. They always want you to fill it out. Do you have any history of heart disease, cancer, depression, all those things? Why? Why is it so? I'm not my father, certainly not my mother. Why is it that they need to know about my family history? Well, because it affects me. Because there's something in me that connects me to my ancestors. There's something that is passed down from them to me. And so for the doctor to treat me well, they need to know. Because I might be susceptible to a particular condition. I might have it. Genetically, it may have been passed down to me. I might have a, a specific disposition towards something. And so the doctor needs to know. So we understand that, right? Isn't it really that big of a logical leap to say that from Adam, something is passed on to us as his, as his descendants that is like a condition, like a medical condition? that makes us sinful, that changed our nature, now we're susceptible towards certain things, now we have certain tendencies. You know, it's not just physical things that we, uh, that we take on after our parents or grandparents. It's not just a history of heart disease. It's particular character traits, right? It's, it's particular goals in life and ambitions even sometimes. I mean, you've heard of people saying, oh, that's a Smith kid, right, or whatever, so-and-so kid. They're all wild like their father. Why? That father may not have even been in the picture, but they're all like that. Why? There's some genetic predisposition. There's something that they receive from their father. It doesn't have to be wild. It could be indecisive. It could be kind or compassionate. I mean, it could be all sorts of things that we can trace back to our parents or grandparents. Something is passed on to us. In my family, for example, I have a hard time finding things in the house. And so when my wife, who has a much easier time finding things in the house, I suspect because she puts them there, but 
she tells me, well, go get Evie's hat. And I'm like, where is it? It's where all the hats are. It's not hard to, to figure out. So I go to where all the hats are. I look at it, and I can't see it. I can't find it until Jillian comes and says, it's right here. You're staring right at it. It's right here. Why can't you see it? And so whenever my daughter, any one of my daughters, for example, Zoya, does the same thing where she can't find something, Jillian says, whose daughter are you? Right? You do the same thing your dad does. You can't find something that's right in front of your face. Somehow, she took on that characteristic. It's not genetic. I don't think it's physical. I don't think it's, it's like a condition, you know. But some, somehow she has that trait that she acts in a similar way that I act. And so I don't think it's that hard, logically, to say that there is a major trait, a major condition passed down from one parent to all the descendants, that now we are all affected by that sin. We're all, our, our natures have been changed. We're susceptible to it. Now we develop the same things in our own hearts that Adam started. So there's the problem of nature. There's the problem of death, that he opens the door, and now our existence is affected by something that is unnatural. Our natures have been changed, and they're different now. And we want to worship somebody other than God. We don't want to know God anymore because we got it from Adam. But there's also a problem of guilt. Death could be explained as sort of the logical consequence of turning away from the author of life. But guilt is, is, is a different matter. Paul says, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And in another place he says, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. This is the problem of guilt. We are condemned. And we feel condemned. Do you realize how much effort is put towards the elimination of guilt in our culture? Almost in any part of our society, on any level, there is an attempt, there is a desire to eliminate guilt and shame. We don't want to deal with that. We all do, but we don't want to. So in preschool and in elementary school, there's a push for, for have the kids feel a high self-esteem so they, they don't blame themselves for anything, that, that they're, they're good kids. Now, I'm not against self-esteem. I think there's a healthy aspect to it. But underlying this desire to, to give them good self-esteem about themselves is this idea, this doctrine, that they're good. But there's nothing bad in them. It's just influences that need to be eliminated. But in themselves, they're good people. They're good children. They just need to be taught that. They need to be encouraged to think of themselves as good. The problem is, of course, they're not that good. So what do you do with the guilt? What do you do with the shame? It's very hard to get rid of it in elementary school even. And then, of course, because it doesn't work, we all end up in therapy at one point or another, and what's the point of therapy? Make you feel good. And you don't feel good because of guilt, because of shame. And so therapists take hours and hours trying to convince you that all your desires are good. You shouldn't feel bad about wanting anything you want. You shouldn't feel bad about any of your actions that stem from those desires. They're, they're all fine. The problem is that, that you've been given this perception about yourself that isn't right, that maybe your society looks at you differently. But if you just embrace who you really are, the good self, and follow through on those things, you shouldn't feel any guilt. In fact, guilt is what produces neuroses in your life. 
And yet, that doesn't seem to work very much either. And so then you get to the criminal justice system. And in the criminal justice system, this sounds like law and order episode, but in the criminal justice system, uh, we try to explain away evil. We can't just say, this person is evil. What, what they did is evil. It's, it's wrong and it's sinful and there should be guilt. There should be punishment, of course. No, we try to find other causes. We try to explain it away. We try to say maybe there's influences in this person's life that drove him to this. Because we all start out good. But we don't. You know why we feel guilty? And we can't get rid of it? Because we are guilty. And the biblical teaching of Adam's sin explains, again, this reality of guilt, this problem of guilt. Why can't we get rid of it? Because it's in our hearts. We are guilty. We're supposed to feel guilty. Because we have done something wrong in Adam by nature, but also personally we've sinned against God. And so the sense of guilt is right. It is appropriate. We are condemned people. We can get rid of it. How can you get rid of something that is true? You are under a decree of God to be punished for your sins. I was watching a movie about uh, South Africa during the time when, when apartheid was, was about to, to be figured out and they had secret talks between the two sides. And so you had the, the white minority that ruled and made all the laws and controlled the police force. And uh, their representative, a liberal professor who didn't approve of what the white minority was doing. He was representing their side. And of course, there was the majority that was represented by another person too. And so they're talking to each other in the secret talks. They're trying to figure out how, how did they come together? How do they move, move past it and, and figure out a way for a just political system, uh, for, for a fair elections, all those kind of things. And, and they realize that there's a lot of fear in the room. But they have all these views of each other that make it makes it very hard for them to get to any, any substantive discussion because they have all these ideas, stereotypes about one another, about the two sides. And so they talk through it and they, they, they talk about, well, who did you imagine I would be? Like, did you think I was going to be this way and act this way? And they're trying to kind of strip away those stereotypes. And finally, there, there comes this, this admission from the white representative. He says, our fear does not stem from propaganda, but from the deep-rooted knowledge that one day we will be punished for all the terrible wrongs we have inflicted. He says it's not about stereotypes. It's not about what we see on TV and what we imagine you are. He said ultimately our fear comes from this understanding that we will be punished for the wrongs we have done. Now, this particular individual was not participating in any of the wrongs. You see, he was, he was a, a liberal professor at a university. He, he, wasn't, he didn't agree with the system. But he was part of that community. He was part of that group that benefited. And so he knew and he felt the guilt of the community in himself. And so he knew that there will be a day when they will be, be punished for all the wrongs they have inflicted collectively. You see, this guilt is real because he belonged to a particular group that for generations oppressed others. He knew it was going to catch up to him at some point. And so we who belong to Adam's race 
who for generation have rebelled against God and broke his laws. We feel this guilt, and there's an expectation of punishment that we will be punished. We must be punished for all the wrongs we have inflicted in the past. The guilt is appropriate. We are condemned people. It all started with one man, Adam, but it spread on all of us. We're all part of it. And it's easy in history to show how almost any tragedy starts with one person, with one decision. You know, we talked about an epidemic, and that's easy to show, right? There's, there's one person that gets it and then spreads it to everybody else. But any historical event of, of any magnitude usually has a person who made a decision that caused a lot of those things. Like, for example, World War I started with an assassination. This is June 28, 1914, in Sarajevo. Uh, a duke, an archduke, was assassinated. And that shot that killed him caused a major political crisis in Europe. A month later, almost all of Europe is at war. And so 60 million people are involved in the military actions over the next four years. Seven people, military personnel, die. Six million civilians die. And we can track it down, we can trace it down to a shot that killed one man. It's not hard to show that an action of one person can cause a tremendous tragedy for a whole community. In this case, for a whole continent of Europe and even other countries in the world eventually got involved as well. Any tragedy could be caused by one person's actions. Wars and epidemics, someone started them. Adam is a person that we credit with sin, sin entering the world, death entering with sin, and we are condemned guilty people because of what he did. It's not just that he happened to be there, you see. It's not, it's not that he was there when it happened, or he just somehow randomly or accidentally uh, happened to eat the fruit. No, no. He, he is a representative. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a weightiness to his role. What he did affected us because he was supposed to represent us. He was, he was the leader of the human race, that God made him our head, our representative, somebody who can make decisions on behalf of all of us. It's like a head of state, like a president, for example, that declares war on another nation. Now, you have not declared war personally, but because you're part of the nation under the headship of that president, you are now part of it. The whole nation is now at war because of one man's decision, but his authority allows him to make a decision like that on your behalf. Have you ever wondered, maybe even now, as we read Romans 5, the passage in the New Testament that probably most fully explains uh, the original sin or the first sin of human race, and yet there is no mention of Eve in this passage. Not even one. It's all about Adam here. Why? He was the representative, not Eve. Now, to be fair, Eve was the first one to sin, right? Eve, in fact, convinced Adam that he should take of the fruit, too. And yet, she is not credited with the representative sin, with the sin that now spreads on everybody else. 
She's not the representative. She wasn't appointed by God to lead the human race. Adam was. And Adam was supposed to lead us well. He was supposed to lead Eve as well. And yet he didn't. He made a decision that affected the whole human race by declaring war on God. Now the whole race is at war with God. I hope these things help. I'm trying to come at it from different angles. I'm trying to show you how death plays into it, how representation plays into it, how, how human nature plays into it. I hope that we have a fuller idea of what happened in the garden all those years ago when Adam decided to go against God and how it affects all of us. Without that, and that's an essential part of the Christian worldview, we can't really understand the gospel because Christ comes as the last Adam. He comes as somebody who is like Adam to do something different to remedy Adam's sin. So let's look at Christ. We'll follow up on some of those themes briefly as we hopefully finish on a positive note. Haven't talked about death for so long. Let's, let's get to life here a little bit. The sin of Adam is met, countered, with the grace of Christ. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. Grace is God's intervention. It is God coming into the human history in Christ and reversing the trajectory. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam disobeyed, and that plunged us into sin. Christ obeyed, and now grace is offered to us to be restored to our relationship with God. How did God do that? Well, he sent Christ to go through the motions as if, as if it was possible, to go through the same things that Adam did, to almost like to relive that day, but to do it right, to do it well. There's a recapitulation, there's a redoing, there's undoing of, of Adam's sin. It's not hard to see those parallels in Scripture. For example, in the garden, Adam pursued his own will, remember, and rejected God's will. God says, don't do it. Adam says, I want to do it, so I will do it. His will clashed with God and his will won out. But Jesus in the garden prayed, remember? When he was sweating with drops of blood, he was, he was praying, not my will, my human will, but your will be done. When his human will clashed with the divine will, the divine will won out. You see similar circumstance, two human beings wrestling with obedience. One disobeys with tragic effects on human race. The other one obeys, reversing that curse back and, and restoring us to God. When tempted by Satan, for example, Adam gave in. The serpent said, do it, and he did it. But Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, resisted. He didn't give in. He undid the failed temptation of Adam. At the tree, Adam sinned, and he was cursed by God. Remember, God cursed him. But on the tree, the sinless, blameless Jesus took on himself Adam's curse 
and absorbed God's wrath for all of humanity. There's a reversal, the undoing of Adam's sin. An angel was set by God to guard the entrance to the garden so that Adam could never return, so that none of his descendants could never return to God. Yet, there's another angel that announced the resurrection of Jesus, his victory over death, our arch enemy, so that all who believe can return home to God and receive a new life in Christ. Just as sin came in through one man, Adam, grace came through one man, Jesus. Adam dragged us down to hell with his decision. But Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, brought us with him as our head, as our leader. He brought us back to God so we can be home once again with him. Jesus is the new representative. He's the new head of state. He's the new leader of humanity. 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the last Adam. It's okay to say he's the second Adam, but more appropriately, it's better to say he's the last Adam. There's no other Adam coming after him. He's the final Adam. He's the final representative who's going to make things right, who's going to undo Adam's failure and restore us back to what we are supposed to be. Jesus makes a decision. He takes an action. He signs a decree that now brings life to his people. If Adam declared war on God, Christ makes peace with God on our behalf. Just like we read in Micah 5, he is our peace. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation. You see, through Adam comes judgment and condemnation that guilt is appropriate. Through Christ, guilt is taken away. It says by one act of obedience comes justification. What is this one act? Of course, all of his life is important. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, all those things are important. But the one act that reverses everything is the cross, is his death. Because on that cross, Jesus absorbs the guilt. You see, he takes the punishment, so there's no more punishment left for us. How do you get rid of guilt? Through the pardon of God in Christ. The only way you can feel guiltless and be healthy and be connected to reality, is by accepting that Christ can take it away on the cross. That in our stead, in our place, he dies for our sins, and now we are free. There's no condemnation, there's no guilt left, because there's no punishment left with God. Ambrose, another church father, said, In Adam I fell, in Adam I was cast out of paradise, in Adam I died, how shall God call me back, except he find me in Adam? For just as in Adam I am guilty of sin and owe a debt to death, so in Christ I am justified. Justified, meaning acceptable to God, restored, healed, redeemed. All of that is available to us in the new leader, in the new representative of humanity, Christ himself, our God-man who came to save us. Now, I'm going to finish on this. Not only does Christ reverse the curse of the first man, but he also advances humanity further where Adam could not go. This, this is hard to grasp for us. We have finite minds. But it's clear in Scripture that Christ's redemption actually moves humanity further than we could have gone in Adam. For example, 1 Corinthians 15 
verses 45 through 49. I'll read the whole passage, see how it compares. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, it's not that we are remade in the image of Adam. We are now remade and remade and changed into the image of Christ. There's an improvement. There's the next step. It, it's, it's amazing for us to contemplate. I don't understand it, but man, am I excited about it. Isn't that what Advent is about? We look forward when Christ comes back and not simply just restore us to what it used to be, but move humanity even further to a more glorious condition, to a better knowledge of God, to a greater enjoyment of God. Listen to John Chrysostom. He says, what we have received is not just a medicine sufficient to heal the wound of sin, but also health and beauty and honor and glory and dignity far transcending our natural state. Each of these in itself would have been enough to do away with death. But when they are all put together in one, there is not a trace of death left, nor can any shadow of it be seen. So entirely has it been done away with. Again, I don't understand it, but there's something that is, God is doing in Christ that even better, it's even newer, it's something that is unimaginable. It's not that we're just returning to Adam in his perfection. There's a new perfection that is even better. Is it incredible? Yeah, absolutely it's incredible. That's what we're offered in Christ by grace. The question is, as we come to the table, are you in Christ or are you still in Adam? You don't have to do anything to be in Adam. You already are. But to be in Christ, you must believe. You must embrace him as your new representative. You must see him as the last Adam, somebody who came to save you, to give you this new life that's even better than the life was in Adam. Are you in Christ? If you are, I welcome you at this table. I encourage you to come and to take the bread and to take the cup. This is a new covenant, a new life that's given to us. God is inviting you to be restored and to be blessed even beyond the restoration. Let's pray. Father, I praise you that you are the kind of God that doesn't just restore but makes things even better. That a new creation is even better than the old creation. It's hard for us to imagine because the old creation was great. And yet the new creation is better, more glorious. We could experience better things in Christ than we could ever in Adam. 